The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Amen. And now let me uh, invite you to turn with me in the scriptures to Matthew chapter 5. Stretch out your hand for a copy of the scriptures if you haven't brought one with you. And open with me on the Pew Bible. It's on page 810 as we turn to Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, which is widely known as Jesus' most famous block of teaching. And we've been uh, returning to it beginning last week after a long hiatus. But last fall, uh, we spent time in the Beatitudes, and now we are in this teaching block in the middle of Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus is describing life in the kingdom of God and the character of true citizens of the kingdom, describing a life of, if you look to Matthew 5 verse 20, A life of exceeding righteousness. A life of exceeding righteousness. Jesus is giving us a description of the ethic of the citizen of the kingdom. The way in which we are to live and the ways in which we are to walk. We come this morning to verses 31 and 32 as we take one of these teaching blocks at a time and consider the words of the king to his people. As he speaks to us, Jesus here has been and will continue to be addressing issues that will make us quite uncomfortable. And because these topics that Jesus addresses tend towards our discomfort, we don't end up thinking much about them. And much less than thinking about them, we certainly don't like to speak about them. And what happens when Christian believers consign certain topics that make us uncomfortable to the background? A number of things happen when we don't give attention to the things that make us uncomfortable. First of all, we don't actively seek out what God has to say about these topics because we don't want to think about them at all. And so if we're not thinking about them, we're certainly not thinking about what God has to say about them. So we put away what God has to say. But then also, secondly, we passively then become disciples of the culture. And rather than what God has to say to us about a topic, we passively receive and assimilate into our lives the popular or socially acceptable opinions of the culture on these topics so that we don't stand out too much on these uncomfortable topics. And when that happens, dear friends, the distinctive ethic of the Christian life fades into the background. And Christian believers become just like anybody else. And Jesus longs for you and I as his disciples and as his kingdom citizens to proclaim the ethics of his kingdom without shame. So we need to hear what he has to say. We need to hear what the Lord Jesus has to say to us, especially about these topics that are so difficult. You see the heading over which we're thinking about this morning? Divorce. And I would admit to you that I don't think any preacher who was just randomly choosing topics would ever just randomly come to this text, which again speaks to the benefit of continuous expository preaching. It's the next text, and so that's where we are. We don't pick and choose. Instead, we sit under the authority of God's Word, which is a good and right and healthy thing for us. But before we get into the details of this, I want to just put out a flag of acknowledgement. 
that this topic lends to us much tenderness oftentimes. That we have tender consciences for one reason or another, and there are many reasons. Those with strained marriages, this topic is a tender one. For those who may have gone through a painful divorce, these words prick that emotion. There may be those who have been divorced but did not want to be, but felt forced into the matter for one reason or another, wondering about what God requires of you relative to that previous marriage and the necessary forgiveness of your former spouse. You might be asking, was my divorce biblically justified or not? And if not, what now and what do I do? As Jesus speaks of adultery in the context of remarriage, there are those who may have a tender conscience about the nature of their second marriage. Those who think that the Bible's teaching on this point is perhaps unrealistic and out of touch feel pricked by the Lord Jesus on this. And those who are affected by divorce beyond husband and wife, but especially children who are confused and hurting. There are those and there are many more, those who have different questions, different emotions. So let me say again, we want to hear what Jesus has to say to us. And then trust the illumination of the Spirit to instruct us as to why this is such an important truth to know and then apply to our lives. So, we need God's help this morning. I need God's help this morning. So let's call for it, shall we, in prayer. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we come before you with the scriptures open before us and we say how we love your word, how thankful we are for the mercies of the scriptures given to us by divine inspiration. Lord, we believe this is your word and so we sit under it to receive what you have to say to us and interact with it with our questions, interact with it with our thoughts and concerns, but yet interact with it humbly and submissively. And so, Lord God, as your Spirit so moved Matthew to record this word for us, may that same Spirit move upon our hearts to illuminate them and our minds that we might read, mark, learn, and inwardly receive all that the Lord Jesus would teach us this morning. For we pray in His name, asking together, Amen. Amen. And now hear the word of the King from Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. This is the word of God. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever and ever. So may he write eternal truth on our hearts today. Now, let me tell you, we're going to be here in Matthew 5. We're going to be in Matthew 19, if you want to get a piece of paper in Matthew 19, and in Deuteronomy 24 in the Old Testament. So just giving you advance notice, Matthew 5, Matthew 19, and Deuteronomy 24 as the roadmap for what we're doing this morning. Jesus is following up his word concerning lust from the previous section with a word about divorce. And before we get into the details of what Jesus is saying, who should be listening to this text? 
Who should be listening to the words of Jesus here? Some people think, well, I'm not married, or I'm not married anymore, or I don't have a prospect of being married, I don't have a desire to be married. Does this even apply to me? Who should be listening? Uh, To the married who desire to be faithful to their spouse, we ought to be listening. To the future wed, that includes children, teenagers, those of you who aspire to marriage as a virtue, you should be hearing the word of your Savior on this topic as he builds in your life a view of marriage that he wants you to have. And to the unmarried, he wants you to be, understand that you are wed to your Savior in faithfulness, in a covenant, and you are to be faithful to him. So there's no one that gets to say, you know, this doesn't apply to me, so I think I'll just let the Lord Jesus alone on this topic as I do something else. No, not at all. He speaks to all of us. Well, we have lots of questions here. And one of the things that I'm continually aware of is that as we seek to ask questions of the Scriptures, which is a good thing, and it's the primary way in which we grow, it is oftentimes impossible to cover the full spectrum of answering all those questions. Nevertheless, we want to ask questions about this topic and find answers from the Scriptures that we might know what Jesus has in mind. And there are lots of questions, lots of questions surrounding this topic, such as, is Divorce, the severing of the marriage covenant, ever a permissible option? Is it entirely forbidden or not? And if it's not, under which circumstances is it legitimate? And if there is such a thing as legitimate, does that necessarily mean then that there is therefore illegitimate divorce? The answer to that shortly is yes. What about when one marriage breaks up and there's a desire for remarriage? What is, what is the Bible's perspective on remarriage? What do we make of these things? Now, one of the things that I hope you'll see as we walk through this and other texts together, that for the Lord Jesus, this block of teaching is so much more about the dignity of marriage than it is about divorce. For the Lord Jesus, this is about cultivating a high view of marriage rather than getting into the nitty-gritty of the details of the reality of divorce in a fallen world. So, I want to walk through this really topic here in this text and in two others by seeing two things. First of all, I want us to see how the Lord Jesus confronts a low view of marriage. How the Lord Jesus confronts a low view of marriage. And then secondly, how then we should be cultivating a high view of marriage. So confronting a low view and cultivating a high view is what we want to do this morning with regard to this topic. So first of all, we want to see how the Lord Jesus confronts the low view of marriage that the Pharisees seem to have here. Now, what he has been doing, what the Lord Jesus has been doing, is that in these various six topics, he is going and saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you, And again, what he's been doing is he is saying, here's how you have heard the instruction from the religious authority concerning this matter. Here's their interpretation of the law. But I say to you, and in that he is authoritatively as the Son of God and King of his kingdom, declaring the reality of the law of God and the application to our hearts. So he's been dealing with specific commands. But what's unique about this portion of Scripture is that there is no command in the Bible to divorce. There is no thou shalt 
divorce. And so therefore, this is a unique section. This passage rather assumes in a fallen world the practice of divorce and speaks of the ways it was regulated in the days of the Old Testament under the Mosaic administration, the Old Testament law. Jesus interprets what that time meant and what Moses meant, and then he applies it still today. So, look again at verse 31, and notice how Jesus is quoting scribal teaching, but also quoting aspects of the law of Moses. Verse 31 the Lord Jesus says, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And what he's doing here is he is quoting Deuteronomy 24, but he is more interested in interacting with how the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees had understood this teaching. Jesus is saying, You have heard it said, but I say to you, Verse 32, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the Lord Jesus is here in the Sermon on the Mount, entering into a topic that actually has multiple occurrences, even in the Gospel of Matthew. So keep your, keep your finger in Matthew 5, but go forward to Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, you see the heading over the the top of Matthew 19, teaching about divorce. So you find him expanding on this reality. In Matthew 19, uh, start at verse 3. Matthew 19, verse 3. It says, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, man must not separate. He's quoting Genesis, of course. Verse 7, Then they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So verse 9 in Matthew 19 is the same thing from Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. But there's an expansion of what Jesus is doing there. Because the Pharisees are coming to Jesus saying, Moses commanded us to divorce our wives. He commanded us to do so. And Jesus says, no. That is not what that was about. So, just like the Lord Jesus was interacting with the scribes and the Pharisees with this topic, so we should as well. So, uh, if you'll turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 24 in the Old Testament. uh, The fifth book of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy Uh, chapter 24. It's on page 165 of your pew Bibles. Uh, What the scribes and the Pharisees are coming to do to Jesus is to really trap him with regard to this topic. They want to know, what do you think about this? Because we certainly know what the truth is. What do you have to say about it? Jesus corrects them because they don't understand what the law of Moses was originally about. So, Deuteronomy 24 Verse 1 says this, 
When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, that was a lot, but we'll try to understand what this is talking about. Back in verse 1, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, you'll see again, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency. I want you to focus on that word indecency there in Deuteronomy 24 for just a moment. There was a division among Old Testament rabbis about what that meant. It's a question of interpretation. If the husband finds some indecency in his wife, what does that mean, indecency? And there were two schools of thought on this. On the one hand, there was the school of Rabbi Shammai that took a clear line, a conservative line, if you like, a textualist line, that said that means adultery. That's all it means. Indecency meaning some sort of unfaithfulness. But there was another school, if you like, a, a more open interpretive school of thought under Rabbi Hillel that said indecency could be anything that offends the husband. Literally anything. So quite seriously, your wife burns your supper? Away with her. Write her a certificate of divorce and be gone. Now that's true that there was a school of thought that said that. And what's interesting here is that the Pharisees in Jesus' time are very attracted to that second view. Because they saw the regulation of Moses as permission, in fact, command to divorce. They love that second view, and they want to know where Jesus stood. So, we come back to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, as we consider also Matthew 19. We're trying to bring these three strands together this morning, okay? Here are three essential truths that the Lord Jesus is teaching us here. One, the Pharisees are preoccupied with the grounds for divorce while Jesus is preoccupied with the honor of the institution of marriage. The Pharisees want to do everything they can to get out of wedlock, and Jesus is honoring the glory of the covenant of marriage. When they ask the question, when can divorce happen? Can it happen for lots of reasons, several reasons, any cause? When in fact Jesus doesn't really answer them because they are preoccupied with ending an institution that God has dignified and created from the beginning. When Jesus says, but I say to you, he is emphasizing marriage is a lifelong union and should not be dissolved lightly. Marriage is a lifelong union and should not be dissolved lightly. You are focusing on easily breaking the covenant bond of marriage that God has created. And so rather than obsessing over the loophole, shouldn't you rejoice in the institution? 
Jesus is first emphasizing. Secondly, Jesus is pointing this out, this, pointing out this fact. Where the Pharisees understood Moses' exception to be a command to divorce, the Pharisees understood Moses commanding divorce, Jesus calls divorce a last resort concession because of the hardness of our hearts. Because the Pharisees would say, well, technically, as long as I write out the certificate of divorce, any divorce is legitimate as long as I sign the paper and, right, I crossed the T's and dotted the I's and it's just a legal matter anyway. What does it really matter? Jesus, in Matthew 5, but more fully in Matthew 19, is teaching that Moses' words in Deuteronomy 24 were not a permission, were not a command, wasn't an encouragement to go out and get divorced, but rather it was to highlight the hardness of their hearts. Moses did not recommend or sanction divorce, and that's where the Pharisees twisted the law. The whole point of the Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 24 was to restrict and prevent men from marrying a woman and then sending her away, and then trying to remarry her flippantly without respect to the institution of marriage. It was actually, and I understand that sometimes on surface level it can be difficult for us to see this, but the Mosaic Law was actually intended to protect women from compulsive and abusive husbands that want to take a wife and then send her away and bring her back as he pleases. Jesus is saying, no, the Mosaic Law was actually a check and balance on your sinful heart. A last resort concession. And then thirdly, the point Jesus is making in the big picture is that the Pharisees regarded divorce lightly. They didn't think anything of it. Right? Divorce is just a reality. And in a scary way, we know that mentality, unfortunately, culturally. The Pharisees regard divorce lightly when Jesus takes it so seriously that with only one exception, he calls remarriage after divorce adultery. Now that, in Matthew 5, is really the thrust of our text. And that is where it comes to us as a difficult word. It's the conclusion of the topic from Matthew 19, but it's also what he says in verse 32, Matthew 5, 32. So this is really the thrust of all of it, that someone can say, well, I'm divorced in the eyes of the court, but nevertheless before God and the sight of God still married, and therefore future relationships that I enter into would be, according to Jesus' word, adulterous, unless they fit certain criteria. When Jesus says in verse 32, except on the ground of sexual immorality, he uses a very particular word, that means unchastity. The Greek word is porneia, but it actually talks about uh, some act of physical sexual immorality. Jesus is saying that such behavior will lead the man and the woman into a relationship that is not actually marriage in the sight of God, but adultery. If I flippantly walk away from marriage without biblical sanction and seek to enter into a new marriage, it could be considered in the sight of God adultery. Now, if you, just, if you just hear one line about this on that topic, hear this. Divorce on unbiblical grounds 
does not cure sin. It complicates it. Divorce on unbiblical grounds does not cure sin. It complicates and compounds sin. The Pharisees are looking for loopholes, and Jesus is saying you're missing the whole point. The Pharisees approach the law of God, and they see it as an obstruction to what they really want, and they're looking for ways to get around it. It would be as if, now, hypothetical, of course, but imagine with me, the Pharisees are driving through the American West, and they come across the Grand Canyon. And they say, how the heck do we get around this stupid hole in the ground? Instead of being at awe in wonder and amazement and appreciation of this, they say, how do we get around it? Right? This is the way they view divine institutions and the law of God. Because the law of God is intended to create in us worship, affection, righteousness. And if our first question is, is there a bridge over this thing or what? We miss the point. Jesus emphasizes that divorce is not the goal of marriage. The goal of marriage is lifelong faithfulness for our joy and for God's glory. So, he's entered into this sticky topic. And so I want to be very clear about this. Because for as much confusion as the Pharisees had, I don't want us to compound confusion in our day. I don't want us to not be clear over the things that Jesus is saying. So, what does this look like? Very practically... How do we interact with this text? You notice that in verse 32, Jesus uses the word except, which is to say there are exceptions to what Jesus is saying here. How do we understand this idea of an exception? Or another way of asking it is, when is the severing of the marriage covenant a legitimate avenue? And again, when we say it like that, we acknowledge that there are illegitimate avenues of severing the marriage bond. But what is the exception? Right? There are illegitimate avenues of divorce. For example, well, I, don't, I just fell out of love. I don't love that person anymore. They don't meet my needs anymore. They don't make me happy. Illegitimate, the Bible says. Illegitimate. Because marriage is a covenant. It's first a promise. It's not about your feelings. It's about your oath before God, your vow before God. So, what what about legitimate pathways? The summary of the Bible's teaching on this point is this, and forgive me for maybe being a little bit straightforward on how this works itself out, but the summary of the Bible's teaching on this point is that divorce is explicitly and only permitted in circumstances of adultery or other sexual immorality or willful and prolonged desertion by one who acts as an unbeliever. And we get that from two places, really. The first, with regard to adultery, by pulling together what Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. Because the word, again, that Jesus uses for uh, unfaithfulness here, sexual immorality, is actually not the most common word that would be used at this time to describe adultery. He's using a more general term. And from that, we understand that immorality, immorality that severs a marriage covenant, is likely that physical pursuit, but it could also not be. 
There could be both the physical act of unfaithfulness, but it could also be broader than that, some general kind of abandonment by other forms of immorality. So there is a a wide application with regard to sexual immorality. But the Apostle Paul also gives instruction in 1 Corinthians 7 regarding the idea of being deserted. A, a, A spouse can desert their spouse. And the idea of desertion is a, a willful separation. Paul speaks of a situation in which a spouse, by their actions, betrays themselves as an unbeliever to their spouse and walks away from them and doesn't come back. They stray away by their own choosing. And the other party desires for the marriage to be maintained, but the other person has deserted. And the Apostle Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 7 that by that separation, the person who may confess the name of the Lord Jesus actually betrays themselves to be an unbeliever by their actions. And the Apostle Paul says, if the unbeliever departs, let them depart. The idea of desertion. Now the point of emphasizing when divorce is legitimate is to emphasize the contrast. Now, this is what we need to hear in our time, isn't it? To emphasize the contrast to the at-will, no-fault divorce of our time. That's been the case, especially in the United States, for the last 50 years or so, when either party can file for divorce on the basis of irreconcilable differences, which is basically a legal umbrella term that says whatever. But Jesus is saying marriage is not honored when it becomes a union that can be broken simply in the name of our convenience. When it can be broken simply because we feel like it. Because marriage is not to be entered into lightly. It is only to be ended for the most grievous of reasons. Because in the Old Testament, the punishment for that type of adultery was the death penalty, which is why Jesus interprets that to us to say, in these circumstances, the other spouse is allowed to live as if that person is no longer, because they have committed such violation against the marriage covenant that divorce is permissible. But let me say that just because divorce is permissible on this occasion doesn't make it necessary. In fact, uh, a couple that I know that is not from this community, don't worry, couple that I know experienced an incredible fissure in their marriage after multiple decades of infidelity and unfaithfulness, and their marriage survived. And you might think, well, it shouldn't have. And I understand that's complicated, and I understand the raw emotions associated with this, and I understand the ways that this affects us, but that particular couple chose another way. And in that way, honor the Lord. And that's not to say, because again, Jesus gives a concession. But that doesn't make it an absolute, because marriage is to be honored. So Jesus is confronting that low view. So what we need then is to cultivate a high view. A high view of marriage. That's what this text is really about. Jesus wants you and I to remember what marriage is for in the first place. That marriage is a lifelong covenant to be held in honor. That's why you hear these words at the beginning of that service. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here in the presence of God to join this man and this woman in holy marriage, which is instituted by God, regulated by His commandments, and blessed by our Lord Jesus Christ, and to be held in honor among all men. 
Let us therefore reverently remember that God has established and sanctified marriage for the welfare and happiness of mankind. Dear friends, if you are married, bind to your heart covenant keeping. Bind it to your heart. Pledge again that nothing will break that union. Strengthen it by genuinely having and holding your spouse, loving and cherishing them by God's grace. And as Jesus teaches in this previous section, gouge out from your heart whatever it is that would seek to get in the way of your faithfulness to your spouse. We ought to be, as the church of Jesus Christ, encouraging and supporting married couples, encouraging the mutuality of covenant keeping as a blessing for the family and the church. Because the institution of the church thrives when families and marriages thrive as well. In a world that says marriage doesn't matter and families aren't important, the church has a very unique role of saying very clearly, no, this matters deeply, and here's why. And not only to uh, those who are married, but to children, to teenagers and children, to unashamedly teach and promote God's plan and purposes to marriage for children. Children, marriage is a good thing. Teenagers, marriage is a good thing. It's God's good design. And it's right that you have desire to pursue it. But His ways are to be followed as you pursue that desire. We cultivate a high view of marriage. And in that, we should be cultivating a high view of God's grace because that's ultimately what all of this is about. The gospel tells us that God pursues us with His love and with His mercy and covers our sins. The gospel is ultimately a marriage story between Jesus Christ and his people. Jesus Christ does not give up on his love or his commitment, and nothing can break his union with you spiritually. And your life and mine is intended to reflect that, but the problem is that we do so imperfectly. We imperfectly reflect the love of Christ, yet Christ loves us still. So, for those of you who have experienced the pain or perhaps the shame of divorce, there is grace to cover that. There is mercy to cover that in Christ. For those who are in strained marriages at the point of breaking, we drink deeply at the fountain of God's mercy, which allows us to have mercy for one another. And whether you are formally married, married, not married with the desire to be, or not at all, we realize that ultimately all of this isn't about us. It's about reflecting the glory of God's good plan and designs to be in spiritual communion with us, his people, and reflect his love to the world. And so let us hear the words of the king and so obey. Let us pray. Well, Lord God, we praise you for your word now and pray that you bless it to us for our growth, for our good, for our joy, and for the glory of your name. We praise you that you are the covenant-keeping God who will never forsake us. And so, Lord, live and abide with us in a way that we might never forsake you or one another. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.